The scripture reading for today is from Genesis 1 and 2. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of the earth, of all the earth, and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And so it was. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden, in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out out of the garden, the Lord God, excuse me, And out of the ground, the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. Okay. Well, um, my name is Cameron, as I said. Uh, Josh mentioned last week, and uh, first, Josh... Thank you so much. Josh had to fill in week of, in some days, few days before, the last two Sundays in a row for me. Uh, and he mentioned a little bit of why. Uh, my family all got COVID in the last couple of weeks. Uh, and I'm still contagious. Uh, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Yeah, I got it two days ago. So uh, I'm thinking we're far enough away from each other. No, 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 no. I wouldn't do that to you. Uh, in fact, so my family got it. My kids, my kids got it from daycare. And then a few days later, my, my wife got it. And I had held strong. I was wearing a mask at home. I was like, I don't want to catch it because we were supposed to fly home to visit our family. Um, and I was like, Suzanne and I were sleeping in different rooms. I was wearing the mask. I was hand sanitizing. Like, if the kids started crying and screaming, I'd be like, you got to take them because I can't have this COVID screaming in my face. So there were perks. There were perks. Um, but uh, the bummer was at the, at, like, the day that their isolation ended was the day I tested positive, which was Thanksgiving Day. Uh, so I had had minor symptoms for a couple days, for several days before that, but was testing negative and then tested positive, and uh, that was a bummer. That was a bummer. So, uh, I wasn't there. I wasn't here the Sunday before that because I was like, "Well, I'm just constantly being exposed, so I could, I could get it 10 minutes before service and be contagious. So I probably shouldn't go." So Josh filled in. Then on Thanksgiving, I was like, "Hey, Josh, you're gonna love this. Uh, I got, I've got COVID." So um, thankfully, it was we all had mild cases, and uh, now we're on the other side of it. We are vaccinated. Do I have super immunity now if I've been vaccinated and got the thing? Yes, at least I'm, <laughs> I'm a god. <laughs> like that's okay. That's definitely heresy. Um, 
That's not part of the sermon. It's just a window into my corrupt heart. Um, anyway, we've gotten off track. We've gotten off track. <laughs> but all that to say, it's really nice to be with y'all. I was basically isolated from people for like three weeks, um, which is sad. Not the way it's supposed to be. Um, yeah, the other thing is, I'm going to use a chalkboard today. And uh, that's, that's nostalgic for some of us because we remember, we remember the glory days of Tim Mackey uh, using this chalkboard. This is... This is uh, this is, this, this is big chalk to fill, all right? And I, I have no illusions that I can display a mastery of this like Tim. Um, but nonetheless, as I was thinking about how to illustrate the task we have, I thought this is probably the best way rather than me trying to create a crummy graphic design for the slides. Um, because, because we've just heard read um, from Grace uh, excerpts from the first two chapters of the Bible, from Genesis 1 and 2. Um, and my, my mother-in-law, she really, she has this great habit. She, she uh, I don't know if she reads the first couple pages, but regardless, whether she reads the first few or not, she always flips to the back of, the, of any book, like a novel, and she reads the last few pages for, you do that too? I saw that, I saw that acknowledgement. What, you do, what is it about your generation? <laughs> That's awesome. So she does it. I think it's really cool because there's some wisdom there. There's some wisdom there because you can't really understand a long-form work of art, say like a, a, long, like a novel or a, a long TV series or something, um, until, like you can't really understand its major themes and where, what the story is actually trying to communicate um, until you've made it to the end. And so I know for my mother-in-law, that's a way of kind of like seeing what themes are going to emerge, like if she can tell by the end. Uh, and there's, yeah, there's something to that. My question to you is, have you ever looked at the first two chapters of the Bible and the last two chapters of the Bible, like side by side? Maybe some of you have, um, but it's super interesting. So we just read from, heard from Genesis, and now I want to read from Revelation chapters 21 and 22. We've got it up on the screen. There's just a few verses. Revelation 21, 1 through 5 says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And the one who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And then we skip ahead to chapter 22, next chapter, last chapter of the Bible. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. And no longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. And they will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. 
And I don't know if, as we read this from Revelation, if you're, if you're seeing all these little connections, but there's all this, this common imagery that's shared between the first two chapters and the last two chapters of the Bible. You've got two creations, Genesis 1-1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Revelation 21-1, I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first had passed away. So that's creation and recreation or new creation. We've got two presences of God in Genesis 1, 2, and 3. We see God just intimately connected with his creation. And then even in chapter 3, after Adam and Eve fall, we see it describes God walking through the garden, like this familial presence where he's just in their midst. And we see that idea restored here, where he is with them. He's wiping the tears from his people's eyes. And there's no need for even the sun because his presence amongst them shines bright. So two presences of God, and then two gardens. Genesis 1 and 2, of course, you've got this beautiful imagery of this amazing garden, and you've got this tree of life, which is this biblically significant image that that picks up throughout the scripture, and this river that flows from it. And then you see that again in Revelation, the tree of life that humanity had been cut off from. Now it's back, and the leaves in the tree, it says, is, is lining either side of the river, and it's producing its fruit once again and it's healing the nations. So the tree of life is back, and the river of life is back. You could also talk about two lacks of shame. In Genesis 2.25, it talks about the man and the wife. They were both naked, and they were not ashamed. There was no discord in their relationship. There was purity there. And I think that's implicit in in chapter 21, this idea that he's going to wipe every tear. Death shall be no more. There's no mourning, no crying, no pain. The former things have passed away. I think one of those former things is the shame that often accompanies ourselves and our human relationships. So the image started here. In Genesis 1 and 2, the habitat God has, has set aside for his people is this beautiful garden with the tree of life and a river flowing from it. And then you've got at the end of the Bible, the last two chapters, you've got the same image. You've got the tree and the river. But now, instead of just being a simple garden, it's this garden in the center of a gigantic, glorious city with the spoils of the nations coming and going and activity. It talks about roads. It talks about like city life blossoming out but the kind of life that, uh, that we, have, we haven't tasted yet. We haven't tasted a city like this. We've tasted ones that are impacted by sin and corruption and evil and death and all of those things. So those are the bookends of the story the Bible is telling. Um, one way you could summarize, you could summarize the story of the Bible a million different ways, and it's useful to do so, but one way you could summarize it is to say it's the story of paradise a life of intimacy with God, with his creatures ruling under him and in relationship with him in his beautiful, good world. Paradise given, paradise lost, paradise secured again by Jesus, and then paradise restored in the new creation. It's one way you could think about the story. So the Bible has a happy ending. The Bible has a happy ending, a very happy ending, and it's an ending honestly, that surprises me and delights me and inspires me the more I hear. Revelation 21 and 22 might be some of my favorite chapters. They are some of my favorite chapters in the whole Bible, if not my favorite. I just find it such an interesting and compelling picture. Um, But some people, maybe myself included, when it comes to like 
I don't know, movies or TV or whatever, um, some of us hate happy endings because it strikes us as like sentimental or unrealistic or just kind of pat, like that's not really the way things are. So when our art tells a story like that, we're inclined to go, that's just, it just doesn't ring true. I don't like it. I don't like it. The pain, um, it, it, some of that can be the pain that, that, that that's not how things are and that's probably not how it's going to be. That nice little bow that we put on the end of that story. Some people love happy endings. Maybe you're one of them because they're an escape from what we know or they're an inspiring glimpse of what we long for. In his book on Advent, uh, which I recommend if you're looking for something to kind of dive into over the Advent season to, to stir your thinking, uh, Tim Keller, he writes, um, the great fairy tales and legends, Beauty and the Beast, Sleeping Beauty, King Arthur, Faust, they did not really happen, of course. They're not actually true. Yet they seem to fulfill a set of longings in the human heart that realistic fiction can never touch or satisfy. And that's because deep in the human heart there are these desires to experience the supernatural, to escape death, to know love that we can never lose, to not age but live long enough to realize our creative dreams, to fly, to communicate with non-human beings, to triumph over evil. If the fantasy stories are well told, we find them incredibly moving and satisfying. Why? It's because even though we know that factually the stories didn't happen, our hearts long for these things. And a well-told story momentarily satisfies these desires. It scratches that terrible itch. We hear these stories and they stir us because deep inside, our hearts believe or want to believe that these things are true. Death should not be the end. We should not lose our loved ones. Evil should not triumph. Our hearts sense that even though the stories themselves aren't true, the underlying realities behind these stories are somehow true or at least ought to be true. So what he's getting at is that there's some part of us deep down that resonates with happy endings, either from the negative side or the positive side, because if the story of the Bible is true, if Jesus really is the risen king and son of God, then happy endings are subtle pointers of what really is coming, what really is coming for those who are in Jesus. They're a little preview of the kind of satisfaction and joy that will come to all of us who know Jesus when this day arrives. But in between these two beautiful, beautiful pictures, these beautiful visions, um, there's a whole lot of ugly, right? It's the fall. It's the rebellion of humanity against its good creator that we read about in Genesis 3. It's our injection of sin, evil, injustice into the world that was made to be good. It's the presence of death. And this is where we live. We all live, uh, and we actually we'll map it out here in a minute where we live on this timeline, but we all live in the in-between, certainly, between these two realities. We live in the messy middle. And so this morning, we're going to spend the rest of our time, um, it, took me, it took me about 20 minutes at home. I hope that number holds. Work hard to make sure it doesn't balloon out past that. Uh, to trace the big picture, like 30,000 foot view of the development of this hope that God would eventually bring this restoration, that he would put things right, and how that developed across the Old Testament specifically, that longing that Jesus fulfilled when he came. Um, 
And it's a story that it spans countless, literally countless generations from our first parents up to the period of prophetic silence. This period of silence that was broken by the events culminating in the cries of baby Jesus on Christmas morning. This, it's the story of longing for God to put things right, eventually distilling into this longing for a spirit-anointed king or messiah. So, we're going to try to do it in, in 10 movements. And again, this is a little bit artificial. You could do this in 20 or 50 or 100 or 5, but 10 is what, uh, what felt appropriate for the task this morning. Um, so the first is, is, I mean, we already mentioned it. The fall happens. Humanity's cut off from the garden, and they're cut off from the tree of life, and limits are imposed upon human life that weren't there before. We're not going to read passages for every one of these movements, but, but I, I, I do want to uh, read a couple here. Um, by the third page of the Bible, our first parents, Adam and Eve, they decided to reject God's rule, right? And they rejected their partnership and intimacy with him, and they embraced the lies of the serpent by eating from the one tree that God had forbidden. And their immediate reaction to tasting sin for the first time was self-conscious shame and hiding. They hid from one another, Adam and Eve, and then they hid from God when he came looking for them. And so for the first time, there's discord for the first time in their relationships with, with one another, with the garden, with God. And so in an act of self, or I'm sorry, in an act of both judgment and kind of sin-limiting mercy from another angle, God declared a series of consequences for what they'd done. For his image bearers, all kinds of difficult stuff. Childbearing would become difficult. Relationships would become difficult. Work would become difficult. Life would be difficult moving forward. Does that sound about right? Life would be difficult. But then listen to Genesis 3.15. In the middle of this, of what's called this, these, these curses that God's declaring, he says this. He says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, talking to the serpent, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. So even in the midst of this heartbreaking announcement that God's making, this tragic declaration, God plants the seed of hope. Genesis 3, verse 15, page 3. Someone in the woman's lineage is going to come and is going to crush the head of and kill the serpent and all that he represents. But, but, but in turn, he is going to be wounded or perhaps even killed by the serpent, striking his heel. And here we see that even though human sin has tarnished life in God, God's good world, God already has a plan from, very, from the very outset of this. He has a plan to finally deal with the serpent and all sin, evil, and death in the world. So even in this tragedy, God provides hope that this is not the way things will always be. And I, my picture here is a tree, but it's this like sad, barren. This is what trees look like in Arkansas, where I'm from in the winter. We have no evergreens. It's so sad. So I, it's, it's the idea of paradise lost. But even in the midst of this, we get this little promise from God. They certainly wouldn't have attached the idea of a cross to it at that point, but we will. There is one coming who's going to make it right. Genesis 3.15, a proto-gospel all the way back there. So we have to skip, we have to skip some well-known stories, uh, some really huge ones. But, but we're going to skip ahead and we're going to pick up with the story of Abraham. Genesis 12. 
And I'm just, my picture here is just a family. Those are their legs, their arms. It's beautiful. It's a really, really nice, really nice looking family. Family portrait. Put that on the mantle. So the, the Lord, out of all the various people that live on the planet, this is after, after Babel and the scattering and the diversifying of the nations. Um, he just ran, he chooses this man, Abraham. Abram was his name at the time. And the Lord said to him, go from your country. This is in chapter 12. Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land I'll show you, and I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And later God tells, tells him that, that he's going to give him as many descendants as there are stars in the sky and that this family is going to become this great nation and that the whole world will be blessed through this family. And so that we see that whatever God's, whatever God's plan is, however it's going to work out, it's going to come through this particular Abraham's family. And it, it won't just be for their good. It doesn't, it's just not just, hey, I'm, I'm going to do a nice thing for y'all. But I'm, going, I'm doing this through and to you to be a blessing to the entire world, to set all things right. And much later, at the end of, at the end of Genesis, chapter 49, near the end, God gives one of Abraham's great-great-grandchildren, Judah, a promise that from his line, his tribe specifically, is going to come this king that will never lose his rule and who will defeat his enemies. And so this all sounds great. This sounds really promising. All right, we've got Abraham. Uh, we've got this family. God's going to do this amazing blessing stuff through them. All right, let's, let's get on with it. Um, but immediately, very nearly, uh, following the events of Genesis, slavery. And these are chains or I can't think of the, their chains we'll just leave it there <laughs> slavery in Egypt so the, this family ends up uh, oppressed by one of the ancient world's great empires at the time they end up literally in chains and servitude to Egypt um, they're forced into backbreaking labor they're forced into lives of misery and hardship uh, but you probably know this story. God revealed to this Israelite shepherd named Moses that he was going to liberate these people. He wasn't going to leave them in chains. The Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and I've heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings, and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey. And the story of God bringing his people, rescuing them out of Egypt, um, is one of the most theologically significant and impactful stories in the entire Bible. It's one that sets, sets themes and motifs that just continue to get picked up and picked up and picked up as the story goes on. And there were two acts that were incredibly defining for Israel. And uh, one was the Passover, and I'm just gonna draw this as a little doorpost. And then one is the Exodus. And this is the waters parting. And people can walk through. Passover and the Exodus. If you remember the Passover, where the Israelites could avoid a plague of death by sacrificing a spotless lamb and spreading its blood over the doorframe of their home. 
the sacrificial lamb, protects them from death. And then the exodus, where God takes his captive people, and against impossible odds, they had no way of saving themselves, they were backed into a corner, he miraculously walks them through the chaotic waters of the sea into liberation and into a land that they can call their own. When they were helpless to help themselves, God intervened. That's the meaning of the exodus from Egypt. So, that happens. I mean, I know we're moving fast here, but they they get out of Egypt through these things, and then they sort of have their life codified into not just a family, not just this this wide lineage that that now had included people from multiple nations that were now identifying with the Israelites that came out of Exodus together, but they were codified into a nation, and this is a flag, they've got a national identity, and they've got a law, this is the the two tablets of the Ten Commandments. So they've got a constitution, and they're, they're now a nation, the birth of the nation. Uh, and not only that, this is not what it looked like, but this is a tent. That's the tabernacle, where God would make his presence amongst them. So their emergence from the Exodus, it marked the beginning of Israel, not just as this people, but now as a nation as God made a covenant with them that included a divine law, that includes the Ten Commandments, uh, most tons of what we read about in the first five books of the Bible, set them apart as distinct from the surrounding nations, and he gave them this promised land of abundance. And he sets up this tent called a tabernacle where people could, where God would allow his presence to manifest in their midst. He was going to come make his home amidst this nation, in this tent, later a temple. And so they were to be a priestly nation. We get the same, some of the same ideas that God gave to, to Abraham, he gives to Israel. He says, you're to be a priestly nation. What that means is that I'm not blessing you just to be kind of a holy huddle unto yourselves, but you are to be a signpost to the world, even as you obey these laws, some of which are kind of weird and are meant to distinguish you from the nations. You're to be set apart that the nations would see you, be drawn to you, and also come and worship me, the one true God. That was the point. So they're a priestly nation, mediators extending an invitation to come and worship the one true creator God who has made all. But it's a bad sign. It's a really bad sign that just as God is covenanting with Israel, like right there when it's happening, (laughs) the people begin turning to other gods, right? Heard the story of the golden calf, all this stuff. They're worshiping in all these various ways. They're rejecting the, the God who's actually rescued them from slavery. And they're saying, ah, oh, we'll, we'll devise a God of our own making. And so it's no surprise that by, by the time we get to Judges, things are just continuing to get worse and worse in Israel. This is a gavel. Judges gavel. And the book of Judges, it's summed up really, really tidily at the very end of the book. Uh, chapter 21 verse 25 it says in those days there was no king in Israel and everyone did what was right in his own eyes everyone did what was right in his own eyes and it's just this cycle of you know things are okay and then they rebel against God and his law they, they rebel and then they're punished like God brings judgment on them um, and then they repent oh this is so bad this is horrible okay God will turn back to you he restores them then they're at rest again and then they relapse again back into just flagrantly 
flagrantly going against what he's, what he's called them to do and their covenant with him. And so it's like every time you think things are starting to go well, like in this story, like something happens that reminds you, like, oh no, this, this, is, not, uh, this is not working. <laughs> like, like God is continuing to be faithful and his people are continuing to sabotage the plan is almost the image that we get. Um, so that's Judges. It's the this, it's this cycle of, of everyone doing what was right in their own eyes, which was led to just chaos. Some of those brutal stories in the Bible are in the book of Judges. It's, it's a gnarly book. Um, and those entrusted with leadership, some of the judges, specifically the judges, more often than not led the nation into sin, idolatry, and evil. And it begs the question, like, is, is the plan still happening? Because if it was going to come through this family and then this nation who's now way down here, you know, making a mess of things and basically in no way a source of God's goodness, an image of God's goodness in the world. Is the plan still on? Like, what is going on? But now we're going to come down here. Pick up down here. Finally, and it's got a complicated history as well. This is a crown. Finally, uh, God provides a king. And it, at, early on, Israel's begging God to appoint a human king over them, and it's, it's, uh, it's, it doesn't go real well. And in fact, they, they, the one that they want, the first one fits their human experience, this king named, named Saul. Uh, and, uh, but the second king, the second king who comes is a man named David. Um, who's this humble shepherd boy who was repeatedly identified as a man after God's own heart. And he ruled Israel in close relationship with God and in wisdom, at least for a period of time. Um, and I'm going to read this. This is an extended quote from 2 Samuel 7. But, but God made this covenant with David that informs, it, it, it picks up the themes we've already been tracing and it kind of sets the table for, for what is going to be expected of this Messiah. It says this, Thus says the Lord of hosts, 2 Samuel 7. I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I've been with you wherever you went and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them so they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly from the time that I appointed the judges over, many pe over my people Israel. And I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. And when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the son of men, but my steadfast love will not depart from him. And as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you, and your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me, your throne shall be established forever. And we'll stop there. But what's going on here is God is making this fresh covenant with David, and he, he's, gonna tell, he's telling him he's going to give David a great name. He's going to give a secure place for Israel, rest from the constant battle, 
an eternal line of descendants that will never end, and a throne or a kingdom that's never going to end. And this promise, it brought so many of these themes together into a head um, and attached them to this kingly figure, this son of David, who's going to be this good king, who's going to rule well, who's going to bring up, usher in all these blessings for God's people. And this king is going to rule in lockstep with the goodness and wisdom of God. And like a lot of biblical prophecy, there's parts of this that you read, and you're like, okay, so is this like Solomon, his next son, who built the temple? Uh, and Solomon was, ended up having, you know, he, was, he got really wacky by the end of his career. Um, or is this pushing beyond, like, like you know, this biblical prophecy, it, it works this way. There's a near, usually a near, near fulfillment and then multiple further fulfillments. And... Um, while the first half of David's own rule did look like this, it was one of the most celebrated periods in Israel's history. Eventually, David himself gave himself over to increasingly grievous sin. And he started a trajectory that ended in his grandchildren splitting the kingdom apart. Splitting the kingdom apart into two warring factions. A kingdom called Judah in the south and a kingdom called Israel in the north. Both of whom mostly had evil kings who led the nation into idolatry. And so, this is the, uh, the crown split in two. Beautiful. Couldn't be any better. So, the kingdom's divided. And God gives this really harsh word, 2 Kings chapter 17, listen to this. It says, and they abandoned all the commandments of the Lord their God, and they made for themselves metal images of two calves, and they made an Asherah and worshipped all the host of heaven and served Baal, and they burned their sons and their daughters as offerings, and they used divinations and omens and sold themselves to do evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking him to anger. Therefore, the Lord was very angry with Israel and removed him out of his sight. So each of these sub-nations is taken into exile. One is taken to Assyria, and one is taken to Babylon. And this was just as God had promised. You go all the way back to Deuteronomy, God is talking about, if you remain faithful to my covenant, faithful to my laws, if you walk in obedience to me, blessing is going to follow. But if you turn your back on me, if you become fundamentally a source of evil and rebellion in this world, then I'm going to pull you out of the land. I'm going to send you into exile. So that's been a, a, a threat, honestly, that's been hanging over Israel this whole time. And it finally comes to fruition where, as this verse describes, this breaking point where enough is enough happens. And the two halves of the nation of Israel, Israel and Judah, they're taken into captivity by these, by these other empires. Jerusalem's destroyed, the temple's destroyed, adding absolute insult to injury. And it looks like all is lost. It looks like all is lost. And by the end of the story of the Old Testament, the exiles of Assyria and Babylon, they're both allowed, some of them are allowed to return back to the land. And so uh, we, we get uh, this picture now of the kingdom, like, kind of put back together. But I don't know. I almost want to put like, this one kind of had some glory to it. Really beautiful. This one's got the like Linus from uh, Charlie Brown. You know? 
What I mean by that is there was this distinct sense that like the glory had not returned. Even though they're back in the land, even though they rebuilt the wall, even though they rebuilt the city, even though they rebuilt the temple, even though they were able to resume worship, even though they rediscovered the law, began to try to seek after it, which are all good things. There was still this sense that something had been irreparably lost and damaged, that the glory had departed, and that perhaps any hope of building back to their glory days, like say under King David, was a bit of a pipe dream. As they continued to be passed, even after this, between different nations, like Greeks and the Persians, all these different groups, eventually the Rome, as we find in the New Testament, were still lording over Israel. They never had like a long, truly sustained period of independence after this. There was still this question of like, are, what is happening? Or maybe more, to put more a point to it, uh, is God done with us? <laughs> is he finished with us? Um, and so, what's that? Yeah, there were times. There were times. It was no king. It was no king. Yeah. Yeah. That's true. That's true. I think the A story here is still the departure, the departure of, of the glory and the designation of what made it special. And so, basically, during this period, kind of going back, going back here, but you could, you could see it all along this whole period. My picture here is a megaphone. How do you draw a megaphone? It's like, that's not very good. Uh, pretend that that's a megaphone and not a whale, okay? Uh, but the prophets. Over this whole period, you've got this group of prophets. They're these kind of wild-eyed, generally outsider figures who would come. And they'd come to Israel, and God, God would inspire them. He'd stir them up to go, and uh, they'd have these messages. Generally, the message was, repent, like, you have departed from the law. You are in rebellion. We need to return to God. We need to return to obedience. We need to humble ourselves and come back to him, and God will restore our fortunes. He has not abandoned us, but we have to, we have to repent. We have to return. We have to repent, and we have to return. But throughout this whole period, there began to be, and they prophesied about a lot of things, but these other ideas began to kind of form and materialize and kind of consolidate in these prophecies. Listen to Isaiah 49.6. Isaiah prophesied, It is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. The implication is that Israel will be reconstituted and be a saving light to the nations. The story isn't over. Or Jeremiah 31. For this day... This is the covenant that I make with the house of Israel after those days. I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God. They shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they all shall know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. I will forgive their iniquity. I will remember their sin no more. So God's going to make this new covenant. That's the language that materializes around this promise. A new covenant with his people that will deal with the problem of their corrupted hearts, fundamentally, and their sin guilt. 
Ezekiel 37, my servant David shall be king over them and they shall all have one shepherd and they shall walk in my rules and be careful to observe my statutes and they shall dwell in the land that I gave to my servant Jacob where your fathers lived. They and their children and their children's children shall dwell there forever and David my servant shall be their prince forever. I will make a covenant of peace with them. It shall be an everlasting covenant, and I will set them in their land and multiply them and set my sanctuary in their midst forevermore. My dwelling place shall be with them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And then the nations will know that I am the Lord who sanctifies Israel when my sanctuary is in their midst forevermore. Does that sound familiar? So God is going to bring someone who's going to bring this new covenant who will remake the human heart from the inside out. A new David will tie up all the promises and will set right all that has been ruined. So though things, this is a dark period of history, God has not still left them without hope. He has not left them without hope. And so, this period, let's see, there's a period then where no formalized prophets appeared on the scene. Roughly 400 years. And they're kind of left hanging. They're kind of left hanging. How, God has continued to reassert his promises. He's continued to promise that he has not left us. But there was a long period of waiting so, there we go. What does this have to do with Christmas? <laughs> or Advent? Nothing. Let's just pack it up. Let's go home. No, this backdrop, it helps us to relate to the pain and the heartache of this wait for the Messiah, for everyone who had been longing for God to fulfill these promises to restore what had been lost, to give even the greater glory that had never even been tasted yet. The Advent season, it encourages us to put ourselves back in the shoes of these folks, to imagine what it would have been like to claw and to cling to the hope that God somehow will do what he said he would do. And you know, we didn't even talk about what else is happening. This is just kind of the, some of the key points in the story but at the same time, you know what else is happening? The tally of human pain and human atrocity is still increasing. People are dying, and there's abuse, and there's broken families, and there's violence, and there's disease, and there's betrayal, and there's corruption and addiction, and you name it. Like, like just the, the tally list of things that have gone wrong is just continuing to grow and grow and grow exponentially. And even in the face of all those things, even in the face of all those things, God was continuing to show up and remind his people he would be faithful. He would bring this one who was going to put these things right. He was going to bring the son of David, this Messiah, who would do it. So they had to learn to wait and to grieve, but not as those with no hope. And that hope was rewarded. God did it. And that's what we're celebrating right now at Christmas, at Advent. He brought the arrival of this one. It was Jesus. To be very clear, 
Jesus was the one who brought about a new covenant between God and humanity that could remake the human heart. Jesus was the king from the line of David and the line of Judah, going all the way back there, the line of Abraham. He was in the line of David, of the kingdom of God, who was given an eternal throne at the right hand of God. And you know, that's where he sits right now, Jesus. He ascended. He sits at the right hand of the Father right now on the throne. He was the temple of God in human flesh amongst his people, moving and dwelling. Emmanuel, God with us. He made his home. He made his tabernacle. He made his tent amongst his people. And he was the one who kept the law perfectly. He was the leader of a new exodus out of enslavement to sin and its oppression who miraculously led his people when there was no other way out into genuine freedom. He was the sacrificial lamb whose blood covered his people and spared them the curse of death. He was the descendant of Judah and Abraham through whom all the blessings of God would be made available, not just to him, to, to him but to the whole world, to any who would believe. The sending of Jesus, the incarnation of the Son of God into human flesh and the human story, this birth of Jesus in this little town called Bethlehem, and then his ministry, death, resurrection, ascension, sending of the Holy Spirit that followed. This is the answer to the question of how is God going to get his people from here to here? Everything changed. Everything changed with Jesus. He was the answer. And his resurrected body is the preview of this new creation, the first fruits. It's a little glimpse that, yes, God can do this. He can raise this man from the dead, this God-man from the dead. And he can appear to hundreds of witnesses and give evidence and proof that if, he, if he's capable of doing that for Jesus, he's capable of doing it for you. So, finally... This story, it reminds us that Jesus wasn't only the hope for the nation of Israel. He's the hope of the whole world. That's always been God's plan. Not to save just one particular people, but to save from all people. Including you and me and your neighbor and your enemy. You name it. Christmas is the answer to the longing of every human heart that gains the eyes to see. Because we're all implicit. I mean, we're all complicit, we're all implicated, we're all part of the problem of evil that infects our world. Like Abraham's family, like Israel, we have embraced sin. You've embraced sin, I've embraced sin. We've turned from God and we need forgiveness. We need forgiveness for who we've been and what we've done. And we need a new power. We need a new heart. We need the spirit of God inside of us. We need his righteousness if we're going to be able to walk faithfully with him into who he's remaking us to be. But even after you find Jesus, and I hope if you're in this room, I don't assume everyone in here is a follower of Jesus. I assume most of you are. But even after you follow Jesus, we find ourselves here in this period. You are here. But it's not so dissimilar to here. Because as they waited for the first advent of Jesus, we wait for the second advent of Jesus, don't we? That's part of the meaning of, of advent, of this arrival. We've had one, we're waiting for another to get here, for the story to really begin. So, 
even after we found Jesus, we still join this ancient story of longing for him to come back and put things right. Because we live in a world, just turn on your news, turn on the news this week, okay? We live in a world of school shootings, of men driving their cars through parades. Even a world where Ahmaud Arbery's murderers very nearly weren't charged. <laughs> the details of that are crazy. Where record gun violence has overtaken our city where 800,000 voiceless image bearers are killed before having a chance to take a first breath every year, where entire people groups are subject to genocide and then kind of met with a shrug like the Uyghur people in China, to say nothing of all the individual tragedies that meet you every month, every year. There's headline stuff, national stuff, international stuff, statewide stuff, citywide stuff, and then there's just like, you were abused, or you were hurt. You're sick. You lost a family member. You're crushed, one way or another. When we can connect that to the story and promises that God's telling, each of these pains, each of these injustices, each of these struggles, each of these like gut-wrenching realities, and our best moments of clarity, they point us back and they reignite that longing for the second advent, the second coming. When it is true, he promises it, so we should believe it, that he will wipe every tear from his people's eyes. Death will be no more. At some point, as this story takes off into eternity future, Sin will be a distant memory. I wonder if we'll have to think really hard to remember this, like what it was like to live in a world where we did these things to each other. By the grace and redemption of Jesus, it will be a distant memory. As the old line tells us, the weary world rejoices. The world is legitimately weary. So don't let our happy ending like make us paper over the fact that life is hard. It's legitimately weary, but if Jesus walked out of the tomb, if he sits at the right hand of the Father, and if he's coming back to heal our world, we can legitimately rejoice. Amen?